Welcome to the one-on-one with one and only sports podcast. I'm your host, Theo Wan. Every person has a story to tell, and this podcast hopes to give an opportunity for those in the sport world to share their unique story. Each week, I interview a new guest to come on the show, and we talk about how they got to where they are in the sport world, what their daily life looks like, some misconceptions people have about their role, and we end with a fun rapid-fire segment to close the episode. If that sounds like something for you, please don't hesitate to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with others. This episode is brought to you by Haddock Sport Performance. Is your training making you better on the field? Haddock Sport Performance provides a complete strength and conditioning experience. With over five years of experience at the elite international level and a global group of athletes, they have come to appreciate that training is a partnership. And with HSP, their goal is to provide each athlete with a truly personal and unique training experience. They work tirelessly with you to get to know you as a person and athlete, and together, build a plan for you to be your best in competition. If you are invested in your own success, then they're here to support you. To know more about their methods and philosophy, head to haddocksportperformance.ca or get a look at their day-to-day by checking out HSP on Instagram. Now with all that done, let's go! Welcome to episode 22 of the podcast. Today's guest is Chris Ruder. Chris is the founder and CEO of Spikeball Incorporated. Spikeball started in 2008 and hit 1 million annual sales in 2013 with no full-time employees. Chris appeared on Shark Tank in 2015. Spikeball started in Chris's living room and has now grown to 31 employees. Prior to this, Chris studied photojournalism in college and has worked for companies such as Monster.com, Microsoft, and Live Nation. Here is my interview with Chris Ruder. So I'm here with uh, Chris Ruder, the founder and CEO of Spikeball Incorporated. So Chris, how are you doing today? I'm fantastic. How are you? I'm uh, really excited here. Uh, I play Spikeball uh, a couple times a week, so I'm uh, excited to hear from the man that brought it uh, brought it to life here. So Chris, can you uh, share with the audience, how did you kind of get involved in, in starting this game? And uh, yeah, just tell us the kind of a, a five minute maybe summary of the story. Yeah, absolutely. So I think a handful of folks think that I'm actually the one that invented it. I am actually not. I brought it back to life. It was originally launched in 1989. So back then I was about 14 years old. And right around that time, some friends of mine actually bought it at a local toy store. And it was actually my older brother's friends. And they played it on and off over the years. And I didn't really get to play a whole lot. You know, I was kind of that annoying younger brother kind of standing in the background. (laughs) But I got to play a little bit, not a whole lot. And from what we understand, it launched in 1989, but it was killed in 1991 or so. So I had a very short life its first time around. Fast forward to 2003, me and my older brother and those two friends and um, my now wife and some others all went on a trip to Kauai, uh, Hawaii. And uh, I think it was Pat Kennedy um, that brought that uh, original set, you know, back from the 80s, kind of covered in duct tape and beat up. And we all got to play on the beaches for, I don't know, four or five days in a row in Hawaii. And that's where my real love for the game came about. And as we were playing, you know, we experienced what I think a lot of players experience. You know, you're playing and then a stranger walks up to you and asks you like, hey, man, what's that game? And yeah, it still happens now. (laughs) It's like the three Three questions. First question is, what's that game? Second one is, how do you play? And the third one is, where can I get it? And that where can I get it, we couldn't answer. We're like, think they stopped making it? Not really sure. And that happened a bunch of times. And me and my friends started talking like, huh, I wonder if we could actually bring this thing back to life. So, you know, we talked about that for like a couple of years, didn't really do anything. And then I said, you know, all right, right, I'm going to talk to some attorneys and see if we can legally do this. I, you know, have no idea how that sort of thing works. 
So the attorneys looked it up and they said, hey, good news. The trademarks, which protects the name, has been expired for, I don't know, 10, 15 years or something wow. like that. So literally nobody owned the name uh, Spikeball. And there was never a patent. So they're like, yeah, you guys can go ahead and do what you want. You know, we did reach out. We tracked on the guy that uh, invented it. And we talked a little bit. Didn't quite come to an agreement on what to do. So we went ahead on our own and launched it. And, you know, me and my friends, we chipped in. Uh, I think it was a total of about $100,000 to start the business. 100000 all in. And they basically became silent shareholders. And I ran the company on my own for those first five years from 2008 to 2013. And then in 2013, it grew to be, yeah, we hit a million dollars in annual sales. And at that point, my wife and I agreed it was now safe for me to quit day job and go full time. So those first five years, it was sort of a night job. You know, come home from my day job, hang out with wife and kids, they go to bed. And then spike ball work would begin usually around eight or nine and then would end, I don't know, maybe one, two in the morning and kind of do that uh, wash, rinse, repeat cycle, if you will. Sweet. And for that time from 2008 to 2013, how were you able to balance sort of like working corporate, kind of your day job, working the part time with Spikeball and then obviously family as well? It sounds like you weren't getting a lot of sleep then. Yeah, it's not not a whole lot of sleep, but I don't know, like it, it was a lot of hours, but I loved it. Like it was, you know, it wasn't like, oh, God, I have to do Spikeball work now. Yeah, it yeah. excited <laughs> me. You know, I remember in those early days, I'd say probably those first five, seven years, I remember like telling friends, giving them updates. Like when I'm telling them these stories, I'm literally getting goosebumps. And I remember being embarrassed, like, God, are they going to think I'm a freak if they, like, can they actually see my goosebumps or I just like feel them <laughs> on my own? I just want to talk about Spikeball for the next 17 hours. And I don't care if you do or don't, because I do. And so it, it never really, I don't want to say it never, you know, I of course had my bad days, but it didn't feel like a chore. What felt like a chore was the day job. And, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for those jobs. You know, they essentially allowed me to keep a roof over my head, allowed me to feed my family. And, you know, that really hedged the risk. You know, a lot of people, you know, they'll quit their day job on day one or they'll quit their day job and then start the company the next day. I think that's crazy risky. And, you know, it's appropriate for some people. But, you know, for me, I had no idea if Spikeball was going to work or not. You know, it's this quirky game that me and my buddies love, but we had no idea if the rest of the world was going to love it. And it would have been pretty irresponsible of me to say, hey, family, I'm going to quit this great paying corporate job and I'm going to roll the dice on this. And if it doesn't work, actually, we can't eat anymore and we're probably going to get kicked out of the house. But hey, let's give it a shot. Right. Like, no, that's stupid. Yeah. So, yeah, it did, you know, five years of essentially two full time jobs. and. But the, the spike ball work, I, I loved doing it. And, you know, I think I had one benefit in that, you know, I, I wasn't, you know, a serial entrepreneur. I didn't have a degree in business or an MBA and had never started a company. So I think that made me probably a bit more comfortable in asking the, the quote unquote dumb questions. You know, I, I shouldn't have known anything. So I was comfortable asking those questions and reaching out to complete strangers, either on Twitter or LinkedIn, and just saying, hey, you know, you seem to know something about whatever the topic is. Would you mind grabbing a cup of coffee with me? And nine out of 10 people ignored, but that one that one out of 10 actually did reply and say yes. And, you know, that, that worked. And usually I'd show up with a set and give them a free spike ball set as a little bit of a thank you. One of our values is surprise and delight. So I always like trying to live by that one. And yeah, million turns of that flywheel. And here we are. Yeah, here we are. Very uh, successful now. But 
uh, just backing up here, when you first started the business, you obviously were excited about spikeball. What excited you about that sport compared to some of the other sports you may have played growing up? Don't get me wrong. I absolutely loved this sport. The excitement was building the company and yeah. building the community. So one thing, so I'll answer your question directly. So what attracted me to the sport versus tennis, basketball, or anything else I played as a kid? You're involved in every single point. Like I was at my son's flag football game yesterday. And I think probably 20 plays went by where he literally did not touch the ball and wasn't really involved in that play. Now, he had fun, and if, hallelujah, if he, he loves that, but <laughs> I remember being bored out of my mind, especially playing baseball. You know, I played Little League for a couple of years, and, you know, I think my parents kind of made me play because they think, like, oh, of course, all American boys need to play baseball. That's what you do. I was the kid picking my nose in right field, just, you know, <laughs> trying to make little dirt, pound, dirt piles and stuff. Because, you know, with baseball, you know, I, I don't know if I have just such a short attention span, but you're only involved in so many plays unless you're the pitcher or the catcher, right? So the thing I love most, most about spikeball or round net, which is the name of the actual sport, all four players more often than not touch the ball every single point. There's that level of engagement that I think a lot of other sports don't have, you know, especially like volleyball. If you're playing two on two volleyball, yeah, you're probably touching every time. But if you're playing four on four or five on five, which, you know, most people do, like, I got bored quick. Another thing that really attracted me when we first played in Kauai, it was my older brother and I versus Tim and Pat Kennedy. So uh, they're, Tim, they're twin brothers. So it was this brother versus brother rivalry. And growing up, my brother and I actually, we weren't all that close. You know, like he was way into sports. I was kind of anti-sport, mm -hmm. didn't get along all that great. But when we were playing in Hawaii, like it definitely brought us, brought us together. We were competing as a team. We weren't sort of going against each other. And that just felt really nice. And I've heard, you know, I don't know what it is about brothers, but I've heard a few other stories about how our sport has actually strengthened their relationship and brought them closer together. So, yeah, I, I would speak to that as well. My brother and I, our last name's Juan. So we call ourselves Juan Direction. And we, so we played a couple of rounded Ontario tournaments. Back in the day, a couple of years ago, he's married now and he's kind of uh, not playing competitively, but we had a great time playing as brothers. So we can uh, definitely speak to what you just said. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. And I don't know. And also in general, like I tend to be attracted to anything that really challenges the status quo and this weird sport that kind of looks like a trampoline and you're running in circles, like absolutely challenges the status quo. So that was, that was pretty attractive to me as well awesome and now that we've talked a little bit about the sport what attracted you then as you were gonna say um to starting a business and kind of building it from the ground up was that something that you had always wanted to do kind of uh post-college and working in corporate i think i'd always wanted to do it but i never really had an idea what quote it was gonna be you know i'm not i'm not an inventor i am very fascinated on the topic of business so even years before Spikeball ever existed. I had any idea about it. I was reading Inc. magazine and just consuming at a pretty high level just business news and reading about startups and marketing and all of that. And even though I had no real idea that I would ever start a business of my own, I was just fascinated by the topic. When Spikeball came, that was just sort of this serendipity where, okay, I've, I've, I've got this uh, love of just learning about business. I've got this product that I think we could bring back and build something. 
all right, let's, this is it. This is sort of the light bulb and let's, let's go for it. And I think one thing that really made it attractive, you know, those, those jobs that I had, they paid well, they were pretty cool products, you know, the Xbox division of Microsoft worked for Live Nation, you know, so selling ads and sponsorships around big concerts and stuff. But I never really liked the jobs. The people were nice enough. Culture wasn't that great. But I think a big portion of it was, you know, those are big, big companies. And I was never really asked my opinion or I never really got to make any decisions on my own. I was more or less handed a playbook and said, Chris, go do this. Go execute the playbook. But I never really had any say in creating the playbook. So one thing that excited me and still excites me about my work at Spikeball is getting to make decisions and getting to work with others and have this just collaborative environment, having that autonomy to decide every morning when I wake up, what do I want to do? That's something I never experienced at my day job. So that was something that was very attractive. And I don't know, I don't think I like sat down one night and say, oh, here's exactly, like, I'm going to be able to make my own decisions and have my own control. So I'm going to start the company. <clears throat> it wasn't that planned out. I was just like, I love this product. A bunch of people have stopped and asked us about it. We think it could become a thing. Let's go ahead and give it a shot. And then I think once we were kind of in motion and as I, I don't know, I remember like being really excited when we opened our first checking account. Like it's it's a it's a business checking account, right? It's nothing. But when they mailed those actual paper checks, I don't know why, but I just thought that was so cool. And I sent a note to my buddies, you know, the quote shareholders, telling them how excited I was. And one of them kind of rained on my parade and said, you know, those are for spending money. We need you to focus on making money. So shut <laughs> yeah. up and let me just enjoy my moment yeah. here. But little stuff like that was, I don't know, I, I really enjoyed. Thank you uh, for sharing that. And as I mentioned in the bio, you hit uh, one million in um, sales there in 2013 with no full-time employees. So fast forward now, you have a few more employees now. How was that hiring your first employee? What did that feel like? And sort of what was the process in getting kind of the company to where it is now? Yeah. So first employee was Scott Palmer, who's our who's now our COO. And in the summer of 2013. I had posted a job looking for a full-time customer service rep. And the plan was, you know, by that time, I think probably six of my eight hours at my Live Nation job were spent doing spike ball work. So I had a private office that had no windows and had a door. So I had complete privacy. And my boss was based in New York and I was in Chicago. So I'd literally <laughs> had two laptops open, a spike ball laptop and a Live Nation laptop. Now, thankfully, I don't have to feel too guilty about that because I was a pretty darn good salesperson and I was hitting my numbers every month. So I didn't feel all that guilty. And that was really all the boss cared about. And he was super cool. And, he, you know, he didn't like call me every day and like, what are you doing? What's going on? Like my job was to sell ads and sell a certain amount every month. And I was pretty good at that. But I wasn't quite ready to quit my job and go full time. But I was getting buried with customer service questions. You know, like, hey, my package got lost or what color is this? How do I put it together? Like just everything under the sun. So I was going to hire a full-time customer service rep. They would be the full-time person while I still had my day job. And I was going to sneak and they were going to like work from a Starbucks across the street from our office. And I was going to like oh, sneak geez. out of the office once or twice a day, check yeah. in on them, make sure they're good. And then, you know, we'd be great. So I posted the job 
and had very few applicants and Scott Palmer actually applied for it. He was very, he was way overqualified for it, but you know, met with him, thought it was going to be like a 30, 45 minute coffee meeting and it's like three hours. If we just, you know, instantly click, did a couple projects with him and you know, maybe it was a month long and I forget we came up with some sort of dollar amount and he eventually made me realize, yeah, what I, what I needed wasn't necessarily a full-time customer service rep. That would have just been a band-aid on the solution. The real root cause of the problems was we had no systems at the company. I was pretty much running the entire company from my email address. And I was just getting more and more buried as the day goes by. So we needed some systems. We needed some processes in place. And that's the sort of stuff that I am no good at and the stuff that he's fantastic at. So he actually started one day before I did. I think he started maybe on a Monday and I was a Tuesday or something like that. And I was almost, yeah, about seven years ago right now. So yeah, so he started. And by that time, we'd also had a couple um, remote interns. So I started getting notes from some college students saying, hey, we love Spikeball. Can we help in any way? So Joel Graham and Scott Wilson were both students at Belmont University in Nashville. And they were uh, becoming super fans of Spikeball. And they reached out. And so they wound up being some customer service interns for us. You know, when they graduated, they became full-time employees. They're still with us. They've been just fantastic. And a lot of our early hires were either like people we met at tournaments or had somehow just sent me a random note saying, hey, I'm way into spike ball and how can I help? So then the side question I have is uh, with all the employees, do you have tournaments like often to see who the best employee is? Like, is that something that ever uh, takes place? We have that tournament every year. I've never lost once. No, I'm kidding. Get absolutely <laughs> smoked. <laughs> You know, we have a remote team, so everybody lives all over the country. We actually have two employees in the UK. So it's rare that we get to see each other face to face. So we do have, you know, when COVID's not around, we usually have retreats twice a year. And for us, a retreat means we rent a gigantic house in some badass part of the world. So, you know, we've done Breckenridge, we've done Sonoma, we've done a house outside of Cancun, um, Michigan, Wisconsin, Park City. Basically, we'll rent a house that literally has like 30 beds in it. Everybody gets their own bed. And we spend a week there. And 90% of that time is has to be fun, you know, and then 10% is sort of work. But the main goal is for employees to establish and strengthen relationships with each other, just so you can have that sort of human contact. And one of those retreats, somebody put together a uh, an employee tournament. So I think we, I don't know if we drew names out of the hat or somebody sort of ranked who's the best and who's the worst and then kind of oh. paired everybody up. And <laughs> I think I was probably on the lower, lower end of that list. We did okay, but we were not one of the finalists on that. So now Skyler Bowles and Sean Boyer are both full-time employees. They used to be on a team together called uh, Chico Spikes, and they've won the national yeah. championship twice. So if we're going to ask who are the best players at the company, I'd, I'd, I'd say the two of them are probably the safe bet. Yeah, some national champs there. And in terms of, uh, are you at the office right now? Is that where we're uh, uh, talking or is that? Yep, it's my yeah, first so time being awesome. in the office since May. I'm literally the only one here. And even like during normal times, you know, our, the office seats six people. But on a normal day, I was either maybe two of us here on a normal day. Like people just prefer working from home, even though I think we've got probably nine or so, I think, Chicago area employees. So they all have the option to come in. But even when they had the option, very few actually would. When you were able to to get the office you have now, and now as we discussed having 31 employees, how does that make you feel? And, and what does that, as you reflect back on your journey, what does that sort of uh, yeah bring up in your mind? 
I like the fact that our employees have the option. They can decide if they want an office or not. So a lot of what I base my decisions on at Spikeball is what made me miserable at my day job and what, what did I not like? So as long as I do the exact opposite of that here, I think I'm in good shape. So I remember I worked at monster.com years ago, a job site for those of you that are young and don't, uh, are not uh, familiar. Like an Indeed, like an Indeed. I'm sure they would know uh, the Indeed.com. The competition, they were this tiny company and they basically just scraped monster.com. Like all the ads that I would work hard to get the companies on monster.com to pay us. Indeed would basically just then repost. They were like the evil competitor. Oh no, I shouldn't have mentioned them then. <laughs> I thought their model back then, I thought was a rather cheap one, but they're doing, I believe, very well today at monster.com. I don't even know if they're still in existence. So I guess they did have the better model. But I remember like, I think I showed up at, sat in my desk at like 9.03 a.m. or something like that, like literally three minutes late. And I remember when my manager gave me some for that. My numbers were good. I was well over quota. But the fact that I showed up a few minutes late, and I remember they actually put, I was in like this assistant manager role at some point there. And they had more or less trained me to give my employees if they showed up late. And I was kind of starting to drink that Kool-Aid. And I was like, wait, why do we care what time people show up? We just care if they're doing their jobs. If they want to go golfing all day or go to the beach or whatever, fine, as long as they're getting their job done. So when it came time to get, you know, become big enough for a an office, you know, I had little kids at home and it was kind of a lot of mayhem. And it's like, yeah, I'd like one. So I'm going to do it. And I'm like, hey, anybody else that wants to come, go for it. If you'd rather sit at home in pajamas all day or do whatever, go for it. But look, let's give you the option. That's kind of the route we've taken there. And and it, it's worked well, you know, thankfully with COVID hitting, you know, I've, I talked to other friends, that, you know, they, they're running companies where they've got, let's say, 50 employees who all were working in a traditional office environment. And they now had to go buy 50 laptops for their employees because they're all going to be working from home now. We didn't miss a beat. You know, we got lucky on that. You know, we didn't say like, yeah, we should have a remote workforce in case a global pandemic ever hits, but it worked out. Awesome. And uh, last question of the segment here. What's some advice you would give to someone who wants to do their own uh, startup or be an entrepreneur, especially in the sport world? Uh, what are some characteristics do you think they need to have to be successful? You need to be curious. I think you need to kind of always be on the hunt for a better way and not just for that narrow idea like let's say you've got an idea to start a new sport or something like that um mm -hmm. like i'll find myself questioning the operations of a small diner uh, or of a grocery store like i, I was uh, buying an iced tea the other day at this small like kind of a mini grocery store kind of a thing and you know over here they've got the, the counter where you order your coffee and iced tea and then over here on the right they've got like the little grocery area and i asked the guy if i can get a slice of lemon my iced tea He's like, oh, sorry, we don't have any lemon. I'm like, oh, yeah, no big deal. As I'm waiting for him to pour it, I look over, and there's about 30 lemons for sale in the little grocery store area, about eight feet from him. And I'm like, oh, hey, bud, you got, actually, you guys have lemons over there. He's like, yeah, but uh, they're over there. <laughs> I was just flabbergasted that that was his, ex his excuse for not being able to give us so. The reason that is, is, I believe, because they have a pretty poor, they have a poor systems. They've trained this employee poorly. And I'm just kind of always questioning and just always looking for a better way. That's not going to improve spike ball at all. I wasn't thinking, how can mm. I? But my mind is just kind of always, the, and I think that has helped 
me and the team sort of build what we've got here. So one other thing, and this one kind of bothers me, it seems like, you know, not necessarily with sports startups, but startups as a whole, it seems that everybody thinks the first step is raising money. Like no matter what, the first thing you have to do is go try and raise some money. And I think that is the absolute last thing you should do. Now, of course, I'm a bit biased. I, you know, uh, we are bootstrapped. So the $100,000 that we've raised was between me and my friends. And that's no small, you know, chunk of change. There's only mm-hmm. so many people that can raise that kind of money. It was maybe ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 a head. That's a lot of money. But I'd also, I, I encourage people like, can you keep your day job another year or two while you build this thing at night? And if you can do that, then that just gives you that much more time to actually learn from your customers, learn what's working, learn what's not. You know, as you and I were talking before, I told you, you know, during those first five years, whenever we'd get a sale on, at spikeball.com, mm-hmm. I would send a personal email to the customer. And I'd say, hey, thanks for buying Spikeball set. By the way, if you don't mind me asking, how'd you hear about it? I heard enough answers where I was able to categorize basically three buckets. So one bucket was ultimate Frisbee players. They'd tell me like, hey, you know, my buddy plays ultimate. I saw it at a tournament or my ultimate coach coach told me about it. Somehow the seed got planted in the ultimate Frisbee community. and had I never asked that question, or maybe had I gone out and raised some VC money or money from uh, angel investors, they may not have given me the time it would have taken to ask and learn the answers to that question, because they most likely would have said, Chris, we gave you this mountain of money. We need you to turn it into a lot more money in a really short period of time, so get moving. And I would have all that stress because I'm now serving my investors and not necessarily my customers. Now, I'm not saying no companies should raise. Of course, some should. In my experience, I would say try to let the day job finance it as long as you can until you just can't take anymore. And hopefully your customers are helping you put food on the table. Because also remember, if you do get investors, you now have a boss. You now have somebody you're reporting to. One very attractive thing about calling my boss and giving those two weeks and you know leaving that world behind me was that I no longer had anybody to report to. So that felt really nice. And again, I'm not speaking in absolutes here, but I'd encourage people to do a lot of really deep thinking about raising money before you actually do it. Some uh, good advice there from uh, Chris Ruder. So do appreciate that. That segues well to segment two, day-to-day life. So uh, with as much information as you can give, uh, especially with the pandemic going on still, what does your day-to-day life look like as a CEO of Spikeball? Pre-COVID and maybe during COVID? Pre and during actually hasn't changed that much. I guess the main thing that has changed, you know, I I typically do come into the office nearly every day, probably three, four days a week. And, you know, this is the first time I've been in our office in, I don't know, three or four months, something like that. So I've been working from home. Uh, I've got three kids who are home as well. Decent amount of mayhem at home, but been making it work. And I came into the office today, just kind of dipping my toe in the water, like, okay, do I feel safe? Am I comfortable? We'll do one day and just kind of see how it feels. So there hasn't been a, a whole lot of change, but you know, typical day for me, for the most part, I'm fairly anti-meeting. You know, we use Basecamp as our tool we use for internal communication here, and I'm a firm believer that 99, maybe 98 percent of everything we need can be done via Basecamp in an asynchronous fashion. 
I think a lot of, especially managers and CEOs, think you need to have that synchronous communication. Those of your listeners that sort of aren't familiar with that sort of, you know, synchronous meaning everybody's on a phone call or in a meeting at the exact same time. Mm-hmm. Asynchronous meaning I'm going to post a note to, bet, to base camp and then everybody can read it whenever it works with their schedule and they can think about it and now post as they see fit. So we have very few synchronous meetings at Spike Ball, but we do have one every Monday, just company-wide, so all 30-plus people. We call it our team meeting. And that basically, and every employee gets to speak on it. We just kind of go in a big circle, and each person gets maybe a minute or two just sharing their highs and lows from that week. And some of it's personal, some of it's business. You know, maybe it's I got a new puppy, maybe it's grandma died, or maybe it's I went for a run yesterday and it was just nice being out. You know, basically just a way for us to have sort of that human element. Sometimes those meetings are presentations. So today, actually, we just had that call a couple hours ago. So Nick Gonzalez, who's our head of marketing, he did a presentation on product development, on things that are working, things that are not working, and how he sees it looking in the future. So all employees, and I encourage them to do this, they can raise their hand and say, hey, I'd like to do a presentation on one of our team calls. And then we just fill them in on a slot and they get to give the the presentation on whatever they see fit. And I do have a call before that, which is, I think, seven or eight people, all from different sort of departments. We did notice that there was a lot, I wouldn't say a lot, but there were some some things falling through the cracks between marketing, customer service, manufacturing, finance, like just, you know, the teams weren't quite talking as much. So we started this Monday call. It's every Monday, or I'm sorry, every other Monday at 10 a.m. And, you know, it's maybe eight people. And again, we go in a circle. And every person just kind of shares with what's going on in their world. So is the shipment for Target showing up early or late? Are there issues with the new design of a product? Have we seen a big influx of positive or negative reviews on Amazon, et cetera? So just those quick updates allow us to connect a lot of updates. And when we started it, I was nervous. I'm like, God, I don't want to have like another scheduled call on the book. I want that to be our absolute last uh, last attempt at a solution, I guess. And the way I've been gauging that is, you know, and I talk very, I don't talk much on these calls, which I like, you know, I learn a ton by hearing everybody give their updates. But there's a lot of really nice deep conversation going on. As long as there's questions being asked, that tells me that there is value being created for this call. So if I notice that these calls are getting pretty quiet and people are giving their updates and there's not much conversation between the two, all right, we can move this back to asynchronous, move it back to base camp. But I do want that sort of scheduled call to be the last thing that we, we try to do. You know, Basecamp can't do it, then we'll then we'll go to, to in person. But I am finding myself spending more time on, you know, and actually speaking to Basecamp, you know, we, we know the uh, the founders of Basecamp fairly well and love kind of how they run their business. They're Chicago guys, at least Jason is. And one thing he said, you know, the most important product that a company makes is the company itself. And I don't know if he said it exactly that way, but that was kind of how I translated that. And I I, I like that idea. So, you know, my job as CEO is not to make the absolute best spike ball set in the world. It's to make sure that the company is functioning in a way that it can make the best spike ball set in the world, that it can make the, the biggest spike ball community in the world, that we can do all these sort of other things. So while I enjoy that, I do want to make sure that I'm not focused too internally and that I am getting you know, regular, having regular conversations with our customers and, you know, remaining a part of the community. So, you know, on the Spikeball app, we actually just turned it back on the other day. You can post on the Spikeball app pickup games. So I posted one a couple of days ago for some pickup games to happen in my neighborhood. 
we set the maximum RSVP to be four because, you know, we don't want to get crowds of strangers together. But I'm going to meet three new players tonight playing in my neighborhood, and I'm going to get to learn a lot about how they hear about us, what do they like about it, what, what would they change, and just kind of what makes them tick. So having a nice balance for that helps as well. Thank you for uh, sharing that, Chris. And you mentioned a lot about sort of company culture. What's something that you think you've done consciously to really foster the team culture that you have there at your company? I think a big one is just the level of autonomy that our employees have. You know, whether, let's say you just graduated from college and this is your first job out of college, you're going to have the same level of autonomy as maybe an employee that has worked at Spikeball for five years or maybe somebody that's been in the industry or working for 20 years. You know, one of our values is trust until you shouldn't. Having that trust, you know, the reason I got in trouble for showing up at my desk at 9.03 is because my manager didn't trust that I was doing the right thing. Or there just there, there was this, just this lack of trust that made him question sort of what I was doing, even though my numbers were great. And I hadn't, I didn't think I'd done anything to sort of make him question whether he should trust me or not. But just that constant kind of peeking over the shoulder and are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? And let's have super formal employee reviews. And we're going to have all these metrics that tell us if you're doing a good job or not. And no, let's just trust you. I think for the most part, people are good. And let's let that guide us and not give people sort of the side eye. And then over time, we build that trust. Let's start with trust on day one. And if it gets violated, then, okay, we'll d- discuss that. I think people appreciate that. And, you know, we've literally only had two people quit in the history of the company. And I don't know. It tells me we're doing something right with the culture. And, you know, you've heard me reference our values a few times. Mm-hmm. Those are not values that, like, I just sat on my own one day, drew them up and said, hey, everybody, we've got values. Take a look at them. Those have been written by all of our employees. So I mentioned the retreats earlier. Um, once a year, we put the values up on the TV screen in the living room of whatever house we're in. And we all sit around and we go uh, value by value, making sure that these are ones we still believe in. Should we delete some of them? Should we add some? Should we change the wording of them? So all employees' fingerprints are all over these values. And the fact that they had a hand in creating them, in writing them, I think gives them a much higher degree of ownership around them. And, you know, a line that I read a long time ago, I don't know who said it, it said, you should hire, fire, and manage according to your values. So writing your values is one thing. Actually using them and living them. And Mm -hmm. if you see somebody that is exemplifying them, don't just say, hey, good job. Say, hey, Skylar, great job on exemplifying our value of surprise and delight. I really appreciate that. Like that means so much more than just, quote, good job, right? We want you to know what it is about what you did that we like. And I think trying to use the values helps. And, you know, sometimes if somebody violates a value, then, you know, when you have to have that tough conversation, you say, you know what, our our value of uh, listen, improve, always be learning. I just haven't seen a whole lot from you in the area of wanting to improve yourself and just sort of further your education. So let's talk about that. You know, that, 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 that leads to a much more meaningful conversation than, than, than not having them. And it sounds like a lot of your um, experiences in corporate really helped you understand what's, uh, what to do and what not to do. A big deal was when you got into these big uh, sports, sporting goods store, like uh, my favorite store when I go to the States, Dick's Sporting Goods. So what was that like to actually get in into those retailers and then really kind of uh, make yourself uh, more known? 
Yeah, so Dick Sporting Goods was our first, you know, what I consider, major retailer. And they actually called us, said we'd like to carry your product. And I was flabbergasted when they called. I think you know we had been in, our first five years was almost all e-commerce, so spikeball.com. I think it was maybe year four, year five, we went on to Amazon, but it was still a pretty tiny percentage of sales back then. We did get a lot of inbound interest from small mom and pop toy stores, sporting goods stores. So we started selling to some of them. But then Dick's called and they're like, yeah, we want you in all 700 stores or something like wow. that. And I was so naive back then. I remember thinking like, if we go with them, you know, like they're like really big. They are the status quo. And will we lose our like street cred? Will we no longer be one of the cool kids if we were to go like in a big retailer? like Selling out mainstream. <laughs> exactly. I didn't want to be that. And thankfully, I had an advisory board at the time where they kind of just smacked me around. They're like, Chris, are you kidding me? Like people would die for this opportunity. So we worked with them and, but wanting to make sure we didn't mess it up, you know, I spoke with them and was like, guys, look, I'd love nothing more than to be in all your stores. I think the biggest customer we have right now has something like 10 locations. You guys have 700. I have a feeling if we were to mess this up with you, you're not going to give me a second chance. So if you're cool with it, can we start with maybe like 50 stores? Let's make sure that we can actually support it and we can ship to you and on time and doing it the right way. And once we get those 50, let's add another 50 or another 100 and we'll eventually get to 700. And to uh, Dick's credit, they said, yes, we'll go as fast or as slow as you want. But let's do it. So we did it, sent our first shipment. And I think three days after it was on the shelf, they called and said, we've got all the data we need. These things are flying off the shelf. We're ready to go all in. As we said, let us know. And so we eventually um, went all in there. And then a couple of years later, Target calls us and they said, we'd like to carry your product. And they were actually carrying one of the knockoffs at the time, but the reviews were terrible and it was creating from what I understand, a pretty negative experience for Target's customers. You know, they go there and they want to get quality stuff. So, you know, our community, our tournaments and everything, we had been uh, generating enough of a buzz in, you know, local parks all over the country. I have a feeling one of the Target buyers was at wherever they live, somewhere in Minneapolis area, and they probably saw some people playing in a park. And they discovered it organically. And that's, I'm guessing, what sort of led them our way. And we, we do very little outbound, but we're in tons of stores. A lot of it has been inbound. And from what I understand, that's not how it normally works. You call the big retailer and then they beat you up on price and you get a terrible location in the store. And it's just this very adversarial relationship. For the most part, you know, we've had very good relationships with, with all of our brick and mortar retailers. That's awesome to hear and, and seeing the growth of that. So last question here. I think some people have seen this, but you've been on ESPN. I, I've seen some uh, tournament coverage. We don't. I'm based out here in Toronto, but I'm you know seeing YouTube clips and things like that. So Ultimate uh, has done something similar. USA Ultimate to try to get on ESPN to get more coverage and get people to know about it. So how was that getting that deal and and sort of getting those big tournaments on to more viewers? Right, more people are seeing Spikeball on ESPN. So yeah, it's been great. Um, not to sound like a broken record, but they called us. And said, we'd love to work with That's you guys. That's your story, though. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. I remember getting it and thinking, like, wait, this has got to be a joke. Like, this isn't real. Like, ESPN calling up. Are you kidding me? But, yeah, we've done, I think, three tournaments with them. We're talking with them about doing more. It's been interesting, though. You know, like, you can't, you couldn't ask for a better partner to add credibility to the sport. So, you know, the, the mission of the company is to create the next great global sport vast majority of the world who's played uh, our product or used our product 
they consider it a fun backyard game and not much more than that. And that's fine. But our job is to try and get as many people actually competing, coming out to tournaments, training, and, you know, treating it like a legitimate sport. And, you know, ESPN calls. I'm like, oh, oh my ESPN God, ESPN calls, great. that's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Problem is, uh, you know, we did uh, one of our first uh, broadcasts with them, and we got a lot of notes from our customers saying, hey, I'd love to watch, but I don't have cable. How can I watch it? And most people, uh, it's most, but a lot of people under the age of 30, at least in the U.S., don't really pay for cable. It's like that in Canada. It's a lot of streaming services now. So. Yeah, so we're, we've got this credibility, which is great. But, you know, I, I don't know what the average age of a, a, a viewer on ESPN is, but it's, I think, a bit older than our, our typical. So it's, it's been great. We're going to continue doing more with them. I wrote an article a couple of years ago called How Spikeball Became Mainstream. And I was like, ESPN considers us mainstream? Like, awesome. Like, You're getting some SC top 10s, I'm pretty sure. So that's, uh, that's as mainstream as you can get, right? So We've been in a few of those. And just, <laughs> you know, we, we've done that. And then if you look at all the different sports that have their bubbles right now. So we've been in all of them. NBA, like I t- can't tell you how many teams at the NBA bu- bubble Brought their own sets, or you know, Skyler's been chasing down a lot of uh, Skyler's on our team. He's he's been uh, chasing down a lot of athletes. The WNBA, the the Wubble, I think they called it. They had a bunch. <laughs> NFL teams, NHL. It's been nuts to see how it's been, how how professional teams have been using it. So maybe you'll see some uh, transplants from some of the pro sports uh, coming out to some spike ball tournaments. Maybe someday that'd be uh, that'd be the dream, right? Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, a lot of the, a lot of these athletes retire at relatively young ages. You know, maybe around, especially football players, you know, maybe around thirty or so. And yeah, exactly. They got a lot of great years in them, so that'd be a great transition. Go from NFL to to us. <laughs> to the spike ball circuit. That sounds good. And so, uh, segment three here: some misconceptions. What are some misconceptions you've heard of? The sport itself, first of all. So when you were first starting out, were people saying, oh, it's kind of like volleyball, but it's not? What's that trampoline doing? What were what were people saying? We definitely get compared to volleyball a lot. A lot of people also compare us to or throw us in the same sort of bucket as cornhole. Oh, I thought you were going to say can jam. <laughs> can jam we get as well. The one thing that's different between us, or not one, but a major one between us and can jam or cornhole is you're going to sweat playing our sport. Absolutely. I can, uh, I can speak to that. <laughs> You're going to work on your hand-eye coordination, your agility. You might even get hurt sometimes if you go too hard. So, and a lot of people, you know, especially when ESPN posts something about us, you know, the haters just light it up like, oh my gosh, like if there's competitive spike ball or competitive round net, what is there going to be competitive paint watching or paint watching paint dry as a competition? Like they just, you know, of course people love to rip on something they don't really know. Ultimate's the same thing. A company called Alti World, they will summarize tweets from uh, like the broadcast on ESPN and what people are saying, oh, I thought that was with your dog. What does the world come to? Like there's Ultimate on uh, on ESPN. So I'm sure Spikeball gets the same sort of uh, the haters, as they say. Yeah, so that that's a lot of it. And a lot of people, yeah, they just don't consider it a real sport. They don't think there's really any athleticism. Oh, you're just hitting the ball off the net. Like how hard can that be? Like, well, come out and, come out and play. I'll show you. For sure. And what about on the business side? What are some misconceptions people might have about the business side of being in the sport industry and the sport world? What are some things people might uh, think that that it is about and and you might want to dispel? 
I think the majority, not a majority, a lot of people think that we are solely here to make a net, a uh, plastic net and a rubber ball. And it comes in a bag and you buy it at the store and that's it. What makes us unique is not that physical product. It is the community. It's the brand and everything we're building around that. And that's, that's difficult, right? Because we're trying to educate. Number one, we're, not only, we're trying to educate the world on what is this weird new trampoline game sport that I see people playing in, um, playing in the park. But then letting them know that, okay, this isn't just this physical product. It's a brand that stands for something. Definitely have a, a voice. We like to use that voice. We have a platform. We want to use it. Uh, we want to bring people together, all types of people together. You know, right now, if you go to one of our tournaments, it's primarily all young white guys. And not by design, <laughs> at least not intentionally. Like you've been to tournaments. I'm assuming you'll say that you'll agree with that statement. Well, I actually partnered with uh, with one of my friends, and uh, we were playing just uh, like a like a tournament. It wasn't co-ed or open or, or you know women's divisions things like that. And she was like, "I'm one of the only girls here." I'm like, "Yep." And we were and we were partnered together, and, and we were playing a bunch of dudes. So definitely, you see that. <laughs> yeah, so we're trying to work on that, right? Like it's 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 there's no easy fix, but you know we we have new uh, women's divisions. We are trying to work with more, you know, communities of color. And I know this is something that Ultimate has struggled with as well. Absolutely. So I don't know what the answer is, but, you know, our product, it, it literally brings people together, right? If you buy it, you don't have to go find three friends or three people to, in order to actually use it. So there's this viral element built into it. So I would love to see, and we are trying to figure out how can we get different communities involved. So yeah, a lot of people will love to take jabs at us. Oh, it's just a bro sport, you know, just fraternity dudes playing. And yeah, there's actually, it's funny. Like I, if we were to somehow do a survey, I find that, you know, a lot of people think it's just, you know, sort of, you know, think of like sort of the negative stereotype of like the meathead fraternity guy. We, we get that. We're on the receiving end of that a lot, but more often than not, when I'm talking to players, especially at college tournaments, engineering majors uh they're very very bright people i think you know uh, if you look at a typical makeup of a group of college students i would imagine our community is much lower in greek involvement than a standard college group There's a lot of graduate students playing as well i find that i run into a lot of graduate students when i'm <laughs> just kind of talking to players and we do have fraternity and sorority members and i love them all and i want more of all of them but we do we do get a, a on the receiving end of a lot of sort of made up stereotype yeah it's actually funny because ultimate similar i played with a lot of engineers in my time um in, in the sport of ultimate so it's kind of uh, funny that the that those uh, two worlds are colliding but my last question here is do you ever um get confusion now with now the sport's called round net and in, in terms of like the tournament so is that something that still is is an education piece as well for people in the public like it's round net Spike Ball's the brand. It's kind of like the sports round net. It's kind of something that you might have to dispel a little bit sometimes. Yeah, definitely. For those of your listeners that are not aware, so round net is the name of the sport. A lot of people think that, oh, I'm going to go play Spike Ball. Well, that's actually not possible because Spike Ball isn't the name of the sport. Spike Ball is a company that makes equipment for the sport mm -hmm. of oh, round yeah. net. Nike is a company that makes equipment for the sport of basketball or you, you name it. Mm -hmm. You're not going to play Nike. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, let's see. let's go play Reebok. And why is that? So I uh, got to know the former head of marketing of Rollerblade years ago. 
And she was telling me that, you know, people used to say, hey, let's go rollerblading. Let's play rollerblade and et cetera. And if they were to continue down that route, rollerblade was at risk of losing their trademark because it was being used in a generic term or in a generic way. She coined the phrase inline skating. So there is no rollerblading. There's no roller uh, rollerblading in uh, the X Games or in the Olympics. I'm pretty sure they're in the Olympics now. It's inline skating tournaments brought to you by rollerblade. Or maybe they're using rollerblade equipment for the sport of inline skates, similar to like, you know, Kleenex or, uh, you know, facial tissue versus Q-tip. Yeah, yeah. Q-tip, yeah. So I had to come up with round that because I wanted to, you know, and if we wanted this thing to be as big as we want it to be, it's got to be bigger than the company itself. And the term had to be generic enough to where nobody could trademark it. So it needs to be very descriptive. So what is it that makes our sport unique? It's literally a round net. Like what other sports are there where there's a round net? I can't really think of any. So that became the name. And yes, a lot of people still struggle with, wait, I thought it was called spike ball. What's this round net thing? And it takes some explaining, but I think keep doing ESPN tournaments and we keep using the term, the term, then people will eventually get it. But you know, we've got some, some heavy lifting to do on that one. Yeah. That's uh, some challenges along the way, but uh, sounds like you embrace it. So that's good. And uh, hopefully you'll embrace this challenge. Nice segue there. <laughs> segment number four rapid fire so uh i'm gonna ask you your top three sports teams and athletes of all time probably say lebron favorite athlete of all time because of what he does off the court absolutely love what you know everything he stands for he's got a huge megaphone and he uses it which i have nothing but respect for probably say michael jordan is number two you know, I was a kid and, you know, Chicago, you got it. You got to be right. <laughs> got to go to a bunch of games and see him and had, you know, my, my bedroom as a kid were covered in Jordan posters. And you know, I don't think there's anybody more exciting than him. And number three, I'd probably not a, not an athlete, but probably Chicago Cubs. They went through what, a hundred and some odd years of no world series title and kept at it their fans kept at it i'm not a huge baseball fan my brother is he's been a season ticket holder forever yeah that was a that was a big day oh my god yeah so i i haven't done i hadn't done an all-nighter i think since college but the night the cubs won my brother and i did an all-nighter went down to wrigley field and turned it up and just had had a, had a great time but uh yeah respect yeah. what they've built for sure. And how long did the celebrations last there and uh, in Chicago? Was it for weeks, people just partying out and celebrating, or how did that go? It was a long, long time. With that said, one reason we actually did do the all-nighter that night is because we were actually going on a vacation to uh, Turks and Caicos that next day, and our flight was like at 7 a.m. So we had to be at O'Hare by like, I don't know, 5 or something. And we're like, wait, we can't go home and go to bed. It's already, you know, 3 a.m. or whatever. Yeah, so might as well just. Yeah, we went home, got our, got our luggage, and then met back at the airport. And <laughs> it was fun. That's awesome. And uh, I think I'm going to, actually, I might not know your answer for this one, but uh, what's your favorite sports memory as a fan? Because you did mention the Cubs earlier, but you said you're not a big baseball fan, so it might be something else. Yeah, here's a dirty secret of mine. In general, I'm not a huge sports person as a whole. Weird that I'm, you know, CEO of a sporting goods company. It's now exposed, but yeah. <laughs> I love the stories behind the sports. I guess yeah. one thing I love about, you know, I think nobody does it better than March Madness, NCAA. Like just yeah, telling absolutely. the stories, the struggles, everything of the players. I'd say probably that, that, that night celebrating with my brother when the Cubs won the World Series. I, I'd say that's probably number one. 
I mean, I'm going to give you uh, two more questions here. These are going to be non-sports questions, so uh, maybe in your wheelhouse. So I'm going to give you one last meal to eat on Earth. You got to tell me the appetizer, main course, dessert, and the drink that you're having. Appetizer? Putting this whole meal together is going to be gross, but it's, I get to make the decision, right? So Yeah, it's your last meal, so you can eat whatever you want. Appetizer is going to be pizza, which is a great appetizer, right? The deep dish Chicago style, though, right? It's got to be. Secret for that is actually Chicagoans don't eat that. The only time they eat that what? is when their out-of-town friends come come in. Wait, my mind is blown. This is like a revelation uh, for those listening here. Chicagoans don't eat deep dish pizza. They just use it as a tourist attraction. Is that what you're telling me? Absolutely. I literally <laughs> have it maybe every two years. And oh, my friends, geez. my friends <laughs> joke that I'm a pizzatarian because I have pizza so much. But not the deep dish. <laughs> I can't remember last time I had it. It's great. I love it. It's so filling. Like, it's terrible for you, but it is fantastic. But yeah, I find myself the only time I have it is when out of town friends, oh, we got to have Giordano's. We got to, and like, yeah, we'd yeah. love to have it. That's pretty much the only time people have it. Wow. So, or, so which pizza would it be uh, this time? Do you have a specific uh, place that you go to? I guess if it is the final uh, final meal I'm having, um, it would probably would be Giordano's deep dish pizza. So that's my appetizer, and that's like a seven pound pizza. So that's a huge appetizer. I'll then have sushi for my main course, pizza and sushi. Obviously, that's a great combination. People do it all the time. For dessert, I will have probably simple, just like a hot brownie with some vanilla ice cream, chocolate sauce on top. For a drink. I actually stopped drinking back in December, drinking alcohol. I'm still drinking liquids. <laughs> um, I was going to say, uh, I'm surprised uh, you're standing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for probably 20 years now, a huge uh, iced, iced tea drinker. So I have probably two of those a day. But yeah, probably nothing exciting for my drink, either an iced tea or soda water or something like that. So, Last question here, the rapid fire. I'm going to give you a chance to put on a concert in your backyard. You're allowed to book any band or artist in the world. You have to pick three of them, and they could be living or dead, and the order in which they play. So hopefully you're a music guy for this question here. Yep, my tastes are going to be wildly different than uh, I think what your your listeners are into, but I'd... I get a lot of Drake because he's from Toronto, so that's uh, usually uh, the main answer. <laughs> you know what Drake's into? He's into Spike Balls, are you going to tell me? He is. He follows us on Instagram. There you go. Shout out. Shout out to, to Drake. Big moment for us when we saw that. <laughs> Wait, what? Popping champagne? You probably uh, took a screenshot there, eh? Framed it up there on the office. He replies occasionally to our DMs. Not often, but occasionally he does. So, Or maybe somebody on his team. I'm not sure who it is. Rolling Stones are opening. Now, Rolling Stones are the main, main act. Opener, Wilco, Chicago band. Seen them a bunch of times, love them. And then the closer, uh, Grateful Dead. All right, nice uh, mix there. I think I'm, I'm showing my age, I think, with all three of those picks. but It's good for the listeners to get to know you, so there you go. And uh, so that actually concludes our show there. Chris, if our audience wants to find out more about you and the company, they probably already know about it, but plug all the socials there uh, uh, for your company and for you as well. Yeah, so we're on all platforms, just at Spikeball. The one where we're seeing the most growth and people are getting the most into is the Spikeball app. So you can find that on either Android or iOS. Great for pickup games and just, you know, got a feed there of people posting, you know, their greatest points ever played and photos and stuff. 
And yeah, if you're looking for me, I'm on Twitter, just at SpikeballChris. Awesome. And uh, you mentioned a little bit earlier about the viral nature, and I, I feel like Spikeball rallies, just the way the, the sport is around it itself, it leads to a lot of viral moments. And would you say that's something that's really helped grow the community there? Absolutely. Just some of the, the athleticism, the diving, the speed that the top players have, you know, in the very early days when there were very, very few people playing, I was one of the better players. Those days have changed. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> God. Yeah. As my email signature says something along the lines of like, you know, I'm one of the top rated players. I am in the top 10,000. So I'm very, very proud of that. Um, but no, yeah, watching, you know, just go to YouTube and just Google top 10 plays and with spike ball in there and you'll, and your, your listeners will just be astonished. It's incredible to see what uh, these guys and girls are doing. And it's depressing for me because I know that I'll never be at that level, but. Hey, you're making it happen though. You're making those moments. So there you go. Something to making those happen. So it, it feels really good <laughs> to see how, how seriously people are taking all this. So yeah, once again, Chris, thank you for coming on the show. Very humbled that you would take time out of your day. Uh, to come on my podcast so i really do appreciate it uh very thankful so thanks thank you it was fun thanks for listening to this episode that actually concludes season one of the one-on-one with one and only sports podcast i truly appreciate each and every listen that we get on the podcast thank you so much season two is going to be coming out october 20th and it's going to feature the players coaches and personalities that make up the ultimate world if that sounds like something for you please let someone know about it we love to spread the word about the podcast. As always, you can follow me on Instagram at one underscore and underscore only underscore sports. You can see some of my commenting highlights on YouTube at the channel one and only sports. And you can reach me by email at theo.one6 at gmail.com. Catch you listeners on the flip side. Peace.